Chapter Seven of Storky and Co. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. The Flag of Their Country. It was winter, bitter and cold of mornings. Consequently, Storky and Beetle, McTurk being of the offensive type that makes ornate toilet under all circumstances, drowsed till the last moment before turning out to call over in the gaslit gymnasium. It followed that they were often late, and since every unpunctuality earned them a black mark, and since three black marks a week meant defaulters' drill, equally it followed that they spent hours under the sergeant's hand. Foxy drilled the defaulters with all the pomp of his old parade-ground. "'Don't think it's any pleasure to me.' His introduction never varied. "'I'd much sooner be smoking a quiet pipe in me own quarters. "'But I see we have the old brigade in our hands this afternoon. "'If I only had you regular, Mr. Corcoran,' said he, dressing the line. "'You've had me for six weeks, you old glutton. "'Number off from the right!' Not quite so previous, please. I'm taking this drill. Left, half, turn, slow, march. Twenty-five sluggards, all old offenders, filed into the gymnasium. Quietly provide yourselves with the requisite dumbbells, returning quietly to your place. Number off from the right in a low voice. Odd numbers, one place, to the front. Even numbers, stand fast. Now, lean in forward from the hips. Taking your time from me, the dumbbells rose and fell, clashed and were returned as one. The boys were experts at the weary game. Very good. I shall be sorry when any of you resume your habits of punctuality. Quietly return, dumbbells. We will now try some simple drill. Ugh, I know that simple drill. It would be highly to your discredit if you did not, Mr. Corcoran. At the same time, it is not so easy as it looks. Bet you a bob I can drill as well as you, Foxy. We'll see you later. Now, try to imagine you ain't defaulters at all, but an half company on parade, me being your commanding officer. There is no call to laugh. If you're lucky, most of you will have to take drills after your life. Do me a little credit. You've been at it long enough, goodness knows. They were formed into fours, marched, wheeled, and countermarched the spell of ordered motion strong on them. As Foxy said, they had been at it a long time. The gymnasium door opened, revealing McTurk in charge of an old gentleman. The sergeant, leading a wheel, did not see. Not so bad, he murmured, not half bad. The pivot-man of the wheel only marks time, Mr. Swain. Now, Mr. Corcoran, you say you know the drill. Oblige me by taking over the commands, and reversing my words step by step, relegate them to their previous formation. "'What's this? What's this?' cried the visitor, authoritatively. "'A, a little drill, sir,' stammered Foxy, saying nothing of first causes. "'Excellent, excellent. I only wish there were more of it,' he chirruped. "'Don't let me interrupt. You were just going to hand over to someone, weren't you?' He sat down, breathing frostily in the chill air. "'I shall muck it, I know I shall,' whispered Storky uneasily and his discomfort was not lightened, 
by a murmur from the rear rank that the old gentleman was General Collinson, a member of the College Board of Council. "'Er, what?' said Foxy. "'Collinson, KCB. He commanded the Pompadours. My father's old regiment,' hissed Swain Major. "'Take your time,' said the visitor. "'I know how it feels. Your first drill, eh?' "'Yes, sir.' He drew an unhappy breath. "'Hellinchon! Dress!' The echo of his voice restored his confidence. The wheel was faced about, flung back, broken into fours, and restored to line without a falter. The official hour of punishment was long past, but no one thought of that. They were backing up Storky, Storky in deadly fear, lest his voice should crack. "'He does you credit, Sergeant,' was the visitor's comment. "'A good drill, and good material to drill. Now it's an extraordinary thing. I've been lunching with your headmaster, and he never told me you had a cadet corps in the college.' Oh, "'We haven't, sir. This is only a little drill,' said the sergeant. "'But aren't they keen on it?' said McTurk, speaking for the first time, with a twinkle in his deep-set eyes. "'Why aren't you in it, though, Willie?' "'Oh, uh, I'm not punctual enough,' said McTurk. "'The sergeant only takes the pick of us.' "'Dismiss! Break off!' cried Foxy, fearing an explosion in the ranks. Uh, "'I ought to have told you first, sir, that—' "'But you should have a cadet corps,' the general pursued his own line of thought. "'You shall have a cadet corps, too, if my recommendation in council is any use. I don't know when I've been so pleased. Boys animated by a spirit like yours could set an example to the whole school.' "'Oh, they do,' said McTurk. "'Bless my soul, can it be so late? I've kept my fly waiting half an hour.' Well, I must be at runaway. Nothing like seeing things for oneself. Which end of the buildings does one get out at? Will you show me, Willie? Who was that boy who took the drill? Cochran, I think his name is. You ought to know him. That's the kind of boy you should cultivate. Evidently an unusual sort. Wonderful sight. Five and twenty boys who I dare say would much sooner be playing cricket. It was the depth of winter. But grown people, especially those who have lived long in foreign parts, make these little errors. And McTurk did not correct him. Drillin' for the sheer love of it. A uh, shame to waste so much good stuff. But I think I can carry my point. And who's your friend with the white whiskers? demanded Storky, on McTurk's return to the study. General Collinson. He comes over to shoot with my father sometimes. A rather decent old bargee, too. He said I ought to cultivate your acquaintance, Storky. Did he tip you? McTurk exhibited a blessed whole sovereign. Ah, said Storky, annexing it, for he was treasurer. We'll have a hefty brew. You pretty average cool cheek, Turkey, to jaw about our keenness and punctuality. Didn't the old boy know we were defaulters? said Beetle. Not him. He came down to lunch with the head. I found him poking about the place on his own hook afterwards, and I thought I'd show him the giddy drill. When I found he was so pleased, I wasn't going to damp his giddy ardour. He mind to give me a, the quid if I had. Wasn't old Foxy pleased? Did you see him get pink behind the ears? said Beetle. It was an awful score for him. Didn't we back him up beautifully? Let's go down to Keats and get some cocoa and sassengers. They overtook Foxy, speeding down to retail the adventure to Keat, who in his time had been Troop Sergeant Major in a cavalry regiment, and now, war-worn veteran, was local postmaster and confectioner. "'You owe us something,' said Storky, with meaning. 
I'm highly grateful, Mr. Corcoran. I've had to run against you pretty hard in the way of business now and then, but I will say that outside of business, bounds and smoking and such like, I don't wish to have a more trustworthy young gentleman to help out of an owl. The way you handled the drill was beautiful, though I say it. Now, if you come regular ends forward, but you'll have to be late three times a week, said Beetle. You can't expect a chap to do that, just to please you, Foxy. Ah, oh, that's true. Still, if you could manage it, and you, Muster Beetle, it will give you a big start when the cadet corps is formed. I expect the general will recommend it. They raided Keats, very much at their own sweet will, for the old man who knew them well was deep in talk with Foxy. I may book we've taken seven and six, Stalky called at last over the counter. But you better count for yourself. No, no. I'll take your word any day, Master Corcoran. In the Pompadours, was he, Sergeant? We lay with him once at Umbala, I think it was. I don't know whether this ham and tongue tin is eighteen pence or one and four. Uh, say one and fourpence, Mr. Corcoran. Course, Sergeant. If it was any use to give my time, I'd be pleased to do it. But I'm old. I'd like to see a drill again. Come on, Stocky, cried McTurk. He isn't listening to you. Chuck over the money. I want the quid changed, you ass. Keat! Private Keat! Corporal Keat! Throop, Sergeant Major Keat! Will you give me change for a quid? Yes, yes, of course. Seven and six. He stared abstractedly, pushed the silver over, and melted away into the darkness of the back room. Now those two will jaw about the mutiny till tea-time, said Beetle. Old Keat was at Sabraon, said Storky. Hear him talk about that sometimes. Beats Foxy Hollow. The head's face, inscrutable as ever, was bent over a pile of letters. What do you think? he said at last to the Reverend John Gillett. Oh, it's a good idea. There's no denying that. An estimable idea. Oh, we concede that much. Well? I have my doubts about it, that's all. The more I know of boys, the less do I profess myself capable of following their moods. But I own I shall be very much surprised if the scheme takes. It's, it isn't the temper of the school. We prepare for the army. My business in this matter is to carry out the wishes of the Council. They demand a volunteer cadet corps. A volunteer cadet corps will be furnished. I have suggested, however, that we need not embark on the expense of uniforms until we are drilled. General Collinson is sending us fifty lethal weapons, cut down Snyders, he calls them, all carefully plugged. Yes, that is necessary in a school that uses loaded saloon pistols to the extent we do, the Reverend John smiled. Therefore there will be no outlay except the sergeant's time. But if he fails, you will be blamed. Oh, assuredly. I shall post a notice in the corridor this afternoon, and I shall watch the result. Kindly keep your hands off the new arm-rack. Foxy wrestled with a turbulent crowd in the gymnasium. Nor it won't do even a condemned Schneider any good to be continually snapping the lock, Mr. Swain. Yes, the uniforms will come later, when we're more proficient. At present we will confine ourselves to drill. I am here for the purpose of taking the names of those willing to join. Put on that Snyder, Master Hogan. What are you going to do, Beetle? said a voice. I've had all the drill I want, thank you, 
"'What, after all you've learned? "'Come on, don't be a scab. "'They'll make you a corporal in a week,' cried Storky. "'I'm not going up for the army,' Beetle touched his spectacles. "'Hold on a shake, Foxy,' said Hogan. "'Where are you going to drill us?' "'Here in the gym, till you are fit and capable to be taken out on the road.' The sergeant threw a chest. "'For all the northern cads to look at, not good enough, Foxybus.' "'Well, we won't make a point of it. "'You learn your drill first, and later we'll see.' "'Hello,' said Ansel of Macrae's, shouldering through the mob. "'What's all this about a giddy cadet corps?' "'It will save you a lot of time at Sandhurst,' the sergeant replied promptly. "'You'll be dismissed your drills early, if you go up with a good grounding beforehand.' Hm, "'I don't mind learning my drill, but I'm not going to ass about the country with a toy Snyder. "'Perone, what are you going to do? Hogan's joining?' "'I don't know whether I've the time,' said Perone. "'I've got no end of extra two as it is.' "'Well, call this extra two, said Ansel. "'Don't take us long to muck up the drill.' "'Oh, that's right enough. "'But what about marching in public?' said Hogan, "'not foreseeing that three years later "'he should die in the Burmese sunlight outside Mintler Fort. "'Afraid the uniform won't suit your creamy complexion?' "'McTurk asked with a villainous sneer. "'Shut up, Turkey! You aren't going up for the army.' "'No. But I'm going to send a substitute. "'Hi, Morell and Wake. You two fags by the arm-rack. You've got to volunteer.' Blushing deeply, they had been too shy to apply before, the youngsters sidled towards the sergeant. "'But I don't want the little chaps. Not at first, said the sergeant disgustedly. "'I want. I'd like some of the old brigade, the defaulters, to stiffen them a bit.' "'Don't be ungrateful, Sergeant. "'They're nearly as big as you get em in the army now.' McTurk read the papers for those years, and could be trusted for general information, which he used as he used his tweaker. Yet he did not know that Wake Minor would be a bimbashi of the Egyptian army ere his thirtieth year. Hogan, Swain, Storky, Perone, and Ansel were deep in consultation by the vaulting-horse, Storky, as usual, laying down the law. The Sergeant watched them uneasily knowing that many waited on their lead. "'Foxy don't like my recruits,' said McTurk in a pained tone to Beetle. "'You get him some.' Nothing loath, Beetle pinioned two more fags, each no taller than a carbine. "'Here are, Foxy. Here's some food for powder. Strike for your hearths and homes, you young brutes, and be jolly quick about it.' "'Still he isn't happy,' said McTurk. For the way we have with our army is the way we have with our navy. Here Beetle joined in, for he had found the poem in an old volume of Punch, and it seemed to cover the situation. And both of them lead to adversity which nobody can deny. You be quiet, young gentleman. If you can't help, don't hinder. Foxy's eye was still on the council by the horse. Carter, White, and Tyrrell, all boys of influence, had joined it. The rest fingered the rifles irresolutely. "'Wait a shake,' cried Storky. "'Can't we turn out those rotters before we get to work?' "'Certainly,' said Foxy. "'Anyone wishful to join will stay here. Those who do not so intend will go out, quietly closing the door behind them.' Half a dozen of the earnest-minded rushed at them, but they had just time to escape into the corridor. "'Well, why don't you join?' Beetle asked, resettling his collar. "'Why didn't you?' "'What's the good? We aren't going up for the army.' "'Besides, 
I know the drill, all except the manual, of course. Wonder what they're doing inside. Making a treaty with Foxy, didn't you hear Storky say? That's what we'll do, and if he don't like it, he can lump it. They'll use Foxy for a cram. Can't you see, you idiot? They're going up for Sandhurst and the shop in less than a year. They'll learn their drill, and then they'll drop it like a shot. Do you suppose chaps with their amount of extra chew are taking up volunteering for fun? Well, I don't know. I thought of doing a poem about it. Rottenham, you know. The Ballad of the Dog-Shooters, eh? I don't think you can, because King will be down on the core like a cartload of bricks. He hasn't been consulted. He's sniffing around the notice-board now. Let's lure him. They strolled up carelessly towards the housemaster, a most meek couple. How's this? said King, with a start of feigned surprise. Methought you would be learning to fight for your country. Well, I think the company's full, sir, said McTurk. It's a great pity, sighed Beetle. Forty valiant defenders have we then? How noble! What devotion! I presume that it is possible that a desire to evade their normal responsibilities may be at the bottom of this zeal. Doubtless they will be accorded special privileges, like the choir and the Natural History Society. One must not say bug-hunters. Oh, I suppose so, sir, said McTurk cheerily. The head hasn't said anything about it yet, but he will, of course. Oh, sure to. It is just possible, my beetle, King wheeled on the last speaker, that the housemasters, a necessary but somewhat neglected factor in our humble scheme of existence, may have a word to say on the matter. Life, for the young at least, is not all weapons and munitions of war. Education is, incidentally, one of our aims. What a consistent pig he is, cooed McTurk, when they were out of earshot. One always knows where to have him. Did you see how he rose to that draw about the head and special privileges? Confound him! He might have the decency to have backed the scheme. I could do such a lovely ballad, rotten it! And now I'll have to be a giddy enthusiast. It don't bar our pulling Storky's leg in the study, does it? Oh, no! But in the call we must be pro-cadet force like anything. Can't you make up a giddy epigram while our catalysts about King objecting to it? Beetle was at this noble task when Storky returned, all hot from his first drill. Hello, my ramrod bunger, began McTurk. Where's your dead dog? Is it defence or defiance? Defiance, said Storky, and leaped on him at that word. Look here, Turkey, you mustn't rot the core. We've arranged it beautifully. Foxy swears he won't take us out into the open until we say we want to go. Disgusting exhibition of immature infants, aping the idiosyncrasies of their elders. Snuff! Have you drawn King, Beetle? Storky asked in the pause of the scuffle. Not exactly, but that's his genial style. Well, listen to your Uncle Storky, who is a great man. Moreover, consequently, Foxy is going to let us drill the corps in turn, privatim et seriatim, so that we'll all know how to handle a half-company anyhow. Ergo, and propter hoc, when we go to the shop, we shall be dismissed drill early. Thus, my beloved eras, combining education with wholesome amusement. I knew you'd make some sort of extra chew out of it, you cold-blooded brute, said McTurk. Don't you want to die for your giddy country? 
Not if I can jolly well avoid it. So you mustn't rot the core. We decided on that years ago, said Beetle scornfully. King'll do the rotten. Then you've got to rot King, my giddy poet. Make up a good catchy limerick, and let the fags sing it. Look here. You stick to volunteering, and don't jog the table. He won't have anything to take hold of, said Storky, with dark significance. They did not know what that meant. Till a few days later they proposed to watch the corps at drill. They found the gymnasium door locked and a fag on guard. "'This is sweet cheek,' said McTurk, stooping. "'Mustn't look through the keyhole,' said the sentry. "'I like that. Why wake your little beast? I made you volunteer.' "'Can't help it. My orders are not to allow anyone to look.' "'Suppose we do,' said McTurk. "'Suppose we jolly well slay you.' "'My orders are I'm to give the name of anybody who interfered with me on my post to the corps, and they'll deal with him after drill according to martial law.' "'What a brute stalk he is!' said Beetle. "'They never doubted for a moment who had devised that scheme.' "'You esteem yourself a giddy centurion, don't you?' said Beetle, listening to the crash and rattle of grounded arms within. "'My orders are not to talk except to explain my orders. They'll lick me if I do.' McTurk looked at Beetle. The two shook their heads and turned away. "'I swear, Storky is a great man,' said Beetle, after a long pause. One consolation is that this sort of secret society biznoy will drive King wild. It troubled many more than King, but the members of the corps were muter than oysters. Foxy, being bound by no vow, carried his woes to Keat. I've never come across such nonsense in my life. They've dialed the lodge, in and out a guard, all complete, and then they get to work, keen as mustard. But what's it all for? asked the ex-troop sergeant-major. To learn their drill. You never saw anything like it. They begin after I've dismissed them practising tricks. But out into the open they will not come, not for ever so. The whole thing is preposterous. If you're a cadet corps, I say, be a cadet corps, instead of hiding behind locked doors. And what do the authorities say about it? Why, that beats me again said the sergeants, fretfully. I go to the head, and he gives me no help. There's times when I think he's making fun of me. I've never been a volunteer sergeant, thank God, but I've always had the consideration to pity him. I'm glad of that. I'd like to see em, said Keat. From your statement, sergeant, I can't get at what they're after. Don't ask me, Major. Ask that freckle-faced young Corcoran. He's their generalissimo. One does not refuse a warrior of Sobraon, or deny the only pastry-cook within bounds. So Keate came by invitation, leaning on a stick, tremulous with old age, to sit in the corner and watch. They shape well, they shape uncommon well, he whispered between evolutions. Oh, this isn't what they're after. Wait till I dismiss em. At the break-off the ranks stood fast. Perone fell out, faced them, and, refreshing his memory by glimpses at a red-bound metal-class book, drilled them for ten minutes. This is that Perone who was shot in Equatorial Africa by his own men. Ansel followed him, and Hogan followed Ansel. All three were implicitly obeyed. Then Storky laid his snide, Snyder, and, drawing a long breath, 
favoured the company with a blast of withering invective. "'Old hard, Muster Corcoran! That ain't any drill!' cried Foxy. "'All right, Sergeant. You never know what you may have to say to your men. For pity's sake, try to stand up without leaning against each other, you bleary-eyed, herring-gutted cutter-snipes! It's no pleasure to me to comb you out. That ought to have been done before you came here, you, you militia broom-stealers! The old touch, the old touch! We know it, said Keat, wiping his roomy eyes. But where did he pick it up? From his father or his uncle, don't ask me. Half of them must have been bombed within the earshot of the bar barracks. Foxy was not far wrong in his guess. I've heard more back-talk since this volunteering nonsense began than I've heard in a year in the service. There's a rear man looking as though his belly were in the pawn-shop. Yes, you, Private Ansell. Storky tongue-lashed the victim for three minutes, in gross and in detail. Hello, he returned to his normal tone. First blood to me, you flushed, Ansell. You wriggled. Couldn't help fussing, was the answer. I don't think I wriggled, though. Well, it's your turn now. Storky resumed his place in the ranks. Lord, Lord, it's as good as a play, chuckled the attentive Keat. Ansell, too, had been blessed with relatives in the service, and slowly, in a lazy drawl, his style was more reflective than Storky's, descended the abysmal depths of personality. "'Blood to me!' he shouted triumphantly. "'You couldn't stand it either!' Storky was a rich red, and his snider shook visibly. "'I didn't think I would,' he said, struggling for composure. "'But after a bit I got in no end of a bait. Curious, ain't it?' "'Good for the temper,' said the slow-moving Hogan, as they returned arms to the rack. "'Did you ever?' said Foxy, hopelessly to Keat. "'I don't know much about volunteers, but it's the rummish show I ever saw. "'I can see what they get at, though. Lord! "'How often I've been told off and dressed down in my day. "'They shape well, extremely well, they shape. "'If I could get them out in the open, there's nothing I couldn't do with them, Major.' Perhaps when the uniforms come down, they'll change their mind. Indeed, it was time that the corps made some concession to the curiosity of the school. Thrice had the guard been maltreated, and thrice had the corps dealt out martial law to the offender. The school raged. What was the use, they asked, of a cadet corps which none might see? Mr. King congratulated them on their invisible defenders, and they could not parry his thrusts. Foxy was growing sullen and restive. A few of the corps expressed openly doubts as to the wisdom of their course, and the question of uniforms loomed on their near horizon. If these were issued, they would be forced to wear them. But, as so often happens in this life, the matter was suddenly settled from without. The head had duly informed the council that their recommendation had been acted upon, and that, so far as he could learn, the boys were drilling. He said nothing of the terms on which they drilled. Naturally, General Collinson was delighted and told his friends. One of his friends rejoiced in a friend, a member of Parliament, a zealous, intelligent, and, above all, a patriotic person, anxious to do the most good in the shortest possible time. But we cannot answer, alas, for the friends of our friends. If Collinson's friend had introduced him to the General, the latter would have taken his measure and saved much. But the friend merely spoke to his friend and, since no two people in the world see eye to eye, the picture conveyed to Collinson was inaccurate. Moreover, 
The man was an MP, an impeccable conservative, and the general had the English soldier's lurking respect for any member of the court of last appeal. He was going down into the West Country to spread light in somebody's benighted constituency. Wouldn't it be a good idea if, armed with the general's recommendation, he, taking the admirable and newly established cadet corps for his text, spoke a few words, uh, just talked to the boys a little, eh? You know the sort of thing that would be acceptable, and he'd be the very man to do it. The sort of talk boys understand, you know. They didn't talk to em much in my time, said the general suspiciously. Ah, but times change, with the spread of education and so on. The boys of today are the men of tomorrow. An impression in youth is likely to be permanent. And in these times, you know, with the country going to the dogs. You're quite right. The island was then entering on five years of Mr. Gladstone's rule, and the general did not like what he had seen of it. He would certainly write to the head, for it was beyond question that the boys of today made the men of tomorrow. That, if he might say so, was uncommonly well put. In reply, the head stated that he should be delighted to welcome Mr. Raymond Martin, M.P., of whom he had heard so much, and to put him up for the night, and allow him to address the school on any subject that he conceived would interest them. If Mr. Martin had not yet faced an audience of this particular class of British youth, the head had no doubt he would find it an interesting experience. "'And I don't think I'm very far wrong in that last,' he confided to the Reverend John. "'Do you happen to know anything of one Raymond Martin?' "'I was at college with a man of that name,' the chaplain replied. "'He was without form and void, so far as I remember, but desperately earnest. "'He will address the call on patriotism next Saturday. "'If there's one thing our boys detest more than another, "'it's having their Saturday evenings broken into. "'Patriotism has no chance beside brewing. "'Nor art, either.' Do you remember our evening with Shakespeare? The head's eyes twinkled. Or the humorous gentleman with the magic lantern. And who the deuce is Raymond Martin, M.P.? demanded Beetle, when he read the notice of the lecture in the corridor. Why do brutes always turn up on a Saturday? Oh, Rayomeo, Rayomeo, wherefore art thou, Rayomeo? said McTurk over his shoulder, quoting the Shakespeare artiste of the last term. Well, he won't be as bad as her, I hope. Storky, are you properly patriotic? Because if you ain't, this chap's going to make you. I hope he won't take up the whole of the evening. I suppose we've got to go and listen to him. Wouldn't miss him from the world, said McTurk. A lot of chaps thought Romeo Romeo woman was a bore, but I didn't. I liked her. Remember when she began to hiccup in the middle of it? Perhaps he'll hiccup. Whoever gets to the gym first, bag seats for the other two. There was no nervousness, but a brisk and cheery affability about Mr. Raymond Martin, M.P., as he drove up, watched by many eyes, to the head's house. "'He looks a bit of a bargee,' was McTurk's comment. "'Shouldn't be surprised if he was a radical. "'He rode the driver about the fair. I heard him.' "'That was his giddy patriotism,' Beetle explained. After tea they joined the rush for seats secured a private and invisible corner, and began to criticise. Every gas-jet was lit. On the little dais at the far end stood the head's official desk, whence Mr. Martin would discourse, and a ring of chairs for the masters. Entered then Foxy, with official port. 
and leaned something like a cloth rolled round a stick against the desk. No one in authority was yet present, so the school applauded, crying, "'What's that, Foxy? What are you stealing the gentleman's brolly for? We don't birch here, we cane. Take away that bauble. Number off from the right!' and so forth, till the entry of the head and the masters ended all demonstrations. "'One good job. The common room hate this as much as we do. Watch King wriggling to get out of the draught. "'Where's the Raymondiferous Martin? Punctuality, my beloved eras, is the image of war.' "'Shut up! Here's the giddy duke. Golly, what a dewlap!' Mr. Martin, in evening dress, was undeniably throaty. A tall, generously designed pink-and-white man. Still, Beetle need not have been coarse. Look at his back while he's talking to the head. Vile bad form to turn your back on the audience. He's a Philistine, a bopper, a Jebusite, and a Hevite. McTurk leaned back and sniffed contemptuously. In a few colourless words, the head introduced the speaker and sat down amid applause. When Mr. Martin took the applause to himself, they naturally applauded more than ever. It was some time before he could begin. He had no knowledge of the school, its tradition or heritage. He did not know that the last census showed that eighty per cent of the boys had been born abroad, in camp, cantonment, or upon the high seas, or that seventy-five per cent were sons of officers in one or another of the services—Willoughby's, Paulet's, De Castro's, Maine's, Randall's, after their kind—looking to follow their father's profession. The head might have told him this, and much more. But after an hour-long dinner in his company, the head decided to say nothing whatever. Mr. Raymond Martin seemed to know so much already. He plunged into his speech with a long-drawn, rasping, "'Well, boys!' that, though they were not conscious of it, set every young nerve ajar. He supposed they knew, hey? What he had come down for? It was not often that he had the opportunity to talk to boys. He supposed that boys were very much the same kind of persons. Some people thought them rather funny persons, as they had been in his youth. "'This man,' said McTurk, with conviction, "'is THE Gadarene swine. But they must remember that they would not always be boys. They would grow up into men. Because the boys of to-day made the men of to-morrow, and upon the men of to-morrow the fair name of their glorious native land depended. If this goes on, beloved hearers, it will be my painful duty to rot this bargee." Storky drew a long breath through his nose. "'Can't do that,' said McTurk. "'He ain't charging anything for this, Romeo.' And so they ought to think of the duties and responsibilities of the life that was opening before them. Life was not all—he enumerated a few games—and that nothing might be lacking to the sweep and impact of his fall added marbles. Yes, life was not, he said, all marbles. There was one tense gasp, among the juniors almost a shriek of quivering hor horror. He was a heathen, an outcast, beyond the extremest pale of toleration, self-damned before all men. Storky bowed his head in his hands. McTurk, with a bright and cheerful eye, drank in every word, and Beetle nodded solemn approval, 
Some of them, doubtless, expected in a few years to have the honour of a commission from the Queen, and to wear a sword. Now, he himself had some experience of these duties as a major in a volunteer regiment, and he was glad to learn that they had established a volunteer corps in their midst. The establishment of such an establishment conduced to a proper and healthy spirit, which, if fostered, would be of great benefit to the land they loved and were so proud to belong to. Some of those now present expected, he had no doubt, some of them anxiously looked forward to leading their men against the bullets of England's foes, to confronting the stricken field in all the pride of their youthful manhood. Now, the reserve of a boy is tenfold deeper than the reserve of a maid, she being made for one end only by blind nature, but man for several. With a large and healthy hand he tore down these veils, and trampled them under the well-intentioned feet of eloquence. In a raucous voice he cried aloud little matters, like the hope of honour and the dream of glory, that boys do not discuss even with their most intimate equals, cheerfully assuming that, till he spoke, they had never considered these possibilities. He pointed them to shining goals, with fingers which smudged out all radiance on the all-horizons. He profaned the most secret places of their souls with outcries and gesticulations. He bade them consider the deeds of their ancestors in such a fashion that they were flushed to their tingling ears. Some of them, the rending voice cut a frozen stillness, might have had relatives who perished in the defence of their country. They thought not a few of them of an old sword in the passage, or above the breakfast-room table, seen and fingered by stealth since they could walk. He adjured them to emulate those illustrious examples, and they looked always in their extreme discomfort. Their years forbade them even to shape their thoughts clearly to themselves. They felt savagely that they were being outraged by a fat man who considered marbles a game. And so he worked towards his peroration, which, by the way, he used later with overwhelming success at a meeting of electors, while they sat, flushed and uneasy, in sour disgust. After many, many words, he reached for the cloth-wrapped stick and thrust one hand in his bosom. This, this was the concrete symbol of their land, worthy of all honour and reverence. Let no boy look on this flag, who did not propose to worthily add to its imperishable lustre. He shook it before them, a large calico Union Jack, staring in all three colours, and waited for the thunder of applause that should crown his effort. They looked in silence. They had certainly seen the thing before, down at the Coast Guard station, or through a telescope half-mast high when a bridge went ashore on Braunton Sands above the roof of the golf club, and in Keats' window, where a certain kind of striped sweetmeat bore it in paper on each box. But the college never displayed it. It was no part of the scheme of their lives. The head had never alluded to it. Their fathers had not declared it unto them. It was a manner shut up, sacred and apart. What in the name of everything Caddish was he driving at, who waved that horror before their eyes? Happy thought, perhaps he was drunk. The head saved the situation by rising swiftly to propose a vote of thanks. And at his first motion the school clapped furiously, 
from a sense of relief. And I'm sure, he concluded, the gaslight full on his face, that you will all join me in a very hearty vote of thanks to Mr. Raymond Martin for the most enjoyable address he has given us. To this day we shall never know the rights of the case. The head vows that he did no such thing, or that if he did it must have been something in his eye. But those who were present are persuaded that he winked once, openly and solemnly, after the word enjoyable. Mr. Raymond Martin got his applause full tale. As he said, Without vanity, I think my few words went to their hearts. I never knew boys who could cheer like that. He left as the prayer bell rang, and the boys lined up against the wall. The flag lay still unrolled on the desk. Foxy, regarding it with pride, for he had been touched to the quick by Mr. Martin's eloquence, the head in the common room standing back on the dais could not see the glaring offence. But a prefect left the line, rolled it up swiftly, and as swiftly tossed it into a glove and foil locker. Then, as though he had touched a spring, broke out a low murmur of content, changing to quick-volleyed hand-clapping. They discussed the speech in the dormitories. There was not one dissentient voice. Mr. Raymond Martin, beyond question, was born in a gutter, and bred in a board-school, where they played marbles. He was further, I give the barest handful from the great store, a floptious cad, an outrageous stinker, a jelly-bellied flag-flapper, this was Storky's contribution, and several other things which it is not seemly to put down. The volunteer cadet four fell in next Monday, depressedly, with a face of shame. Even then, judicious silence might have turned the corner. Said Foxy, After a fine speech like what you heard the night before last, you ought to take the older your drill with renewed activity. I don't see how you can avoid coming out and marching in the open now. Can't we get out of it, then, Foxy? Storky's fine old silky tone should have warned him. No, no, not with his giving the flag so generously. He told me before he left this morning that there was no objection to the corps using it as their own. It's a handsome flag. Storky returned his rifle to the rack in dead silence and fell out. His example was followed by Hogan and Ansel. Perone hesitated. Uh, look here, oughtn't we? he began. I'll get it out of the locker in a minute, said the sergeant, his back turned. Then we can— Come on, shouted Storky. What the devil are you waiting for? Dismiss! Break off! Why, what thee? Where thee? The rattle of Snyder's slammed into the rack drowned his voice, as boy after boy fell out. Why, I don't know that I shan't have to report this to the head, he stammered. "'Report, then, and be damned to you!' cried Storky, white to the lips, and ran out. "'Rummy thing,' said Beetle to McTurk. "'I was in the study doing a simply lovely poem about the jelly-bellied flag-flapper, "'and Storky came in, and I said, "'Hello!' "'And he cursed me like a bargee, "'and then he began to blub like anything, shoved his head on the table, and howled. "'Hadn't we better do something?' "'McTurk was troubled.' Perhaps he smashed himself up somehow. They found him, with very bright eyes, whistling between his teeth. Did I take you in, Beetle? I thought I would. Wasn't it a good draw? Didn't you think I was blubbing? Didn't I do it well? Oh, you fat old ass! 
and he began to pull Beetle's ears and cheeks in the fashion that was called milking. "'I knew you were blubbing,' Beetle, Beetle replied composedly. "'Why aren't you at drill?' "'Drill? What drill?' "'Don't be a clever fool.' "'Drill in the gym.' "'Cause there isn't any. The Volunteer Cadet Corps is broke up. Disbanded, dead, putrid, corrupt, stinking. And if you look at me like that, Beetle, I'll slay you too. Oh, yes, and I'm going to be reported to the head for swearing. End of chapter 7